Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, I hope you're thankful for the amazing energy that comes from a choir like that. Aren't you blessed by that crew? Uh, we don't just grab people randomly on Sunday and stick them up here. Uh, uh, they wouldn't take me if that was the case, but uh, they work hard. And I pray as you, uh, two things, as you see those folks, bless them. Uh, if you saw that they saved a seat so they could be a part of the service and you stole their seat, just let them know as they sneak around looking for a new spot where they can sit. But uh, they sacrifice a lot to do that for us. I'm so thankful. Um, this week... Just one major thing that I want you to uh, make sure that you've got on your calendars. Uh, there's some big stuff happening this week. I don't know if you're aware of that, okay? Thanksgiving is one of those, okay? Somebody likes Thanksgiving. That's the person right there who doesn't have to buy presents, right? Because it's not Christmas. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming up, but during this week, uh, on Tuesday, we're having a praise and prayer night. Some of our other praise and prayer nights have been coupled together with other big events that have been happening at our church, but this one is going to be a standalone. It's on Tuesday. I want you to make time to be there. Uh, the thing that is expected within the New Testament is this sense of community that we would worship together, that we would pray together uh, to advance what God wants to do in the church. It softens our heart. It helps us to connect with each other. Um, but one of the things that's hard for us to do in front of other people is worship and pray. Have you ever noticed that? Two things that we should be able to do freely, that we should be able to do openly before the God who calls for us to do those things, and this is an opportunity for you to sharpen that skill and to bless other people by showing up. So uh, just like on Sunday morning where you take time to be here and there's an energy that happens when you all show up, come on Tuesday, uh, it'll be an amazing time. We're going to wrap up our series in the book of Jude. Turn there with me. The book of Jude. Pop open. Uh, and for those of you that still have paper Bibles, make sure you make a lot of flapping noises so the people around you can know where to find. The book of Jude is toward the end of your Bible. We've been there for a few weeks, but it can be hard to find. Uh, hard to find little book, but an important message. And we're going to be focusing on verses 20 through 25 at the very end. Uh, I was following the trail of uh, a different uh, illustration that I was looking up. And yes, I do from time to time try to verify the stories that I tell you, uh, unless it just ruins how uh, big and uh, unashamedly um, larger than they're supposed to be that it is. Then I just tell you the story that I want. Uh, but in this case, I was following this trail and I saw this website for a volunteer firefighting program. And in there, they had some pictures. And I just want you to imagine for a moment that you've stumbled onto the scene and you're a volunteer firefighter. You come in, you've probably seen this picture before here, but uh, you see inside of a building, there is just fire. You are not aware, is there anybody that's in there, any life forms whatsoever that are in there? You're not sure even who is arriving on the scene. It's a volunteer firefighting program that we're considering. And so you come to a place, the house is on fire and everything that looks like it might have life in it is engulfed in flames. What do you do? So on this website, they had another picture here of some firefighters that had showed up. This is actually 
from a fire that had happened in 2003. The amazing thing was Volunteer Firefighter Association, they pick a fire that happened in Roseburg. This happened on Breezy Lane. It's a group of guys that had showed up. They were obviously prepared. They had put on their gear. They had showed up at the fire. They had told each other where they were at. They had good command of all of the water. They were able to uh, deal with that fire. And deal with it in Roseburg means you let it burn all the way to the ground so insurance will pay for a new trailer. (laughs) I'm sorry if that's offensive, but uh, a fire went through Breezy Lane, did $100,000 worth of improvements, and everybody was blessed. And so... This is what they said at the Volunteer Firefighter Association. These are the things that you need to be aware of when you are coming to that location. It says, first of all, when you show up on the scene, you need to be ready to command. Why? I'm just going to give you three of their five points. Be ready to command. Why? Because a lot of people are going to show up with a lot of opinions about what, they, what you ought to be doing. They're going to show up with their garden hoses, their rakes, their shovels. They're going to run into the fire and get into trouble. And you're going to spend more time trying to save volunteers than you will actually taking care of business. Be ready to command. Second thing that they highlighted on this website that they would train you in is this idea. Clear communication saves lives. Clear communication. Seems like a simple concept. This is where I want you to go. These are the people that are headed to that location. I need you to go in this direction. And you make sure that you are clear and why it is that you are sending them to that location. You just assume that there is a chain of command. And then at the end of their five-point highlight that they say, hey, we'll train volunteer firefighters so that you can do a good job. Their final thing was you need to know your priorities. Your priority is not to um, show up and be the boss on the scene. Your priority is to save lives As much as is possible, save those structures and make sure that you're decreasing the harm that could happen around the secondary things. Make sure that you're addressing those priorities. What are the priorities when you show up on the scene? You should be prepared. The book of Jude uh, is a book that is given to volunteer firefighters. It's given to the church, a group of people who are not the Savior, but they're working underneath the Savior to impact a world. And he says, I want you to be aware. There is a group of people that are just going to storm onto the scene. They're going to start saying all kinds of things, and they're going to lead people into chaos, into the fire, rather than into safety. We covered a few points. I'll just give you three of five. False teaching is not near. It is here. If God is at work in the church, if he is growing in that church, there will be false teachers. There will be apostates. There will be folks who want to put on the clothing of a Christian because they like the association. But they will sneak into the church and they'll begin to snipe at those who believe, to draw them away after themselves. They'll try to make a name for themselves by feasting on the sheep. It's not near, Jude says. It is here. It's in the church. We identify that that's going to be true in our church if we're really growing and chasing after the Lord. But the second thing that he highlights is is he says you can identify it. You can identify false teaching. You can see not only false teaching, but you can identify false teachers. And the reason that he highlighted that was to warn. It didn't want you to go on a witch hunt. That's not what Jude's trying to do. He's just warning you, you can identify when false teaching is happening and you can run away from that false teaching. But now we come to the section that he is focused on where he tells us what it is we should be focused on. 
our priorities. He spends all of this time in the book of Jude. Now, it's a, a short book, but he begins to quote stories 10 different times. He looks at the Old Testament. He highlights all of these illustrations. He gives you all of this theology. He unpacks for you the identity of an apostate. He does that in these verses very quickly because he assumes that you know the stories and you trust him as a leader. But then he comes to his summary and he says, now I want to camp here and I want us today to take away from the book of of Jude. If you forget everything else, I want you to hear these things in the book of Jude. After you've identified an apostate, after you've been appropriately warned, you're prepared for the scene, what is it that we should have as as our priorities? As first responders on the scene when we see a mess that is taking place, what is it that we should be aware of? Book of Jude, verses 20 through 25. Let's stand and read these together and we'll try to unpack them. It says this, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, Our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to highlight three things out of this passage. Three things, because that's my number. Uh, There are many things in here that I think would be worthy of spending your time, but I want you to see this. Starting at the very beginning, in uh, verses 20 and 21, it says, but you, dear friends, remember, uh, all the way through this book, if you've been kind of walking through this with us, it said these people, these people, these people, identifying uh, the heart of apostates and identifying false teaching, identifying things that are going the wrong direction. But he says, but you, he switches it away and he says, you've got that identity, you got that stuff in a bag, wrap that up. What is it that you are called to do? You, dear friends, as you build yourself up in your most most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. First thing I want us to highlight here, it's the duty of a first responder to be prepared and to arrive equipped. As you build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. The main verb here in this two-verse section here has all of these different things. You'll notice some participles in there. If you look at the original language, that means they're supporting this verb. The center idea here is you keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Why would he say that? Have you ever... Consider that it's, it's possible in this day and age to get your focus off of Jesus and onto the mess. 
Is it possible that you could find yourself so irritated by what's going on in the world, so irritated by what's going on financially in the world, what's going on in politics, what's going on in Hollywood, what's going on on TikTok and Facebook or whatever the things are, you could get so distracted with those things, you would begin to lump yourself in with other people who are also irritated and in all of your irritation, you share your irritation with other people and irritate them. <laughs> Do you know that's possible? You can just turn to the person next to you and say, I I know you've done this, (laughs) all right? Keep yourself. Doesn't say keep your neighbor, doesn't say keep your spouse, doesn't say keep your kids. You gotta start by keeping yourself in the love of God. Focus. Get wrapped up with him once again. Make sure that he's your favorite, not all those other things. And it says this, as you build yourself up in your most holy faith, or literally building yourself up in your most holy faith, keep yourself in the love of God. Build your knowledge and commitment of the truth. Uh, Literally, the idea here is to build layer upon layer. Some of us are content to be Christian. Are you aware of that? I think one of the major reasons that kids wander away from the faith is that they ask questions of their parents about the faith. Why do we say this? Why are these things true? Why why is it wrong for me to feel this way? And many times we begin to listen to those questions and we hear them only as antagonism because, you know, junior hires and high schoolers uh, tend to have a little wine with the question, right? A little bit of irritation that comes in there. And instead of addressing the question... We've been content for a long time to say, that's just the way it is. That's just what we're supposed to do. This is just what we're supposed to believe. But what has accidentally snuck into our own heart is we're not even sure why those things are true. They're just true and I'm content to be right. It says, keep yourself in the love of God. And it says, by building your most holy faith. Do you know that layer upon layer, starting with the idea that truth is knowable, you can work your way all the way up. Truth is knowable. Theism is realistic. The God of the universe is the God of the Bible. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and you ought to give your life to him. These all naturally build if you just take time to unpack them and see that Scripture is not only internally uh, true, but when you take a look at all of the things that it proclaims about the world around as they make discoveries, not only historically, but as they make discoveries about statements that are made inside of the scriptures, it continually points itself to being true. It is unique in all the world religions. You can trust Jesus Christ, he is the savior of the world, and you can put your faith in him, amen? Do you know why? Can you personally give a reason for the hope that is in you based on scripture and plain reason? You should be able to do that. John Lennox, uh, one of my uh, favorite apologists, uh, in part because if you ever look him up, and I would encourage you to do that, uh, he comes from the northern part of England someplace. I think he's Welsh or Irish or something. His way of speaking just is cool. I love his voice. But he has this idea uh, about a teapot. He says, if you were to see a teapot and it is, uh, uh, the kettle is boiling, you can ask this question, why is the kettle boiling? He says, we're asking the same question when we take a look at the universe and the reason for existence. Why does it all exist? Why is the kettle boiling? 
Now, there's two ways that you can answer this. One, you can talk about the heat that's been applied to the bottom of the kettle. You can talk about the, the way that molecules are getting excited. You can talk about the, the, uh, the change uh, that happens in water, the change of state that goes from uh, the water in the kettle to the steam that is coming up, the boiling that's happening. You can go through all of the chemical makeup of water and all of these things. You can describe it right down to the metal that is holding the teapot together, and you would be accurate. This kettle is boiling because of the heat that's been applied and a change of state that is going on. But he says... That's one way to answer why the kettle is boiling. The other reason, way that you can answer why is the kettle boiling is you could say, because I wanted a cup of tea. You can talk about the state, you can talk about all those things, but you do, don't still know the, the why. Why is it that it is boiling? He says both answers are appropriate. When we take a look at the word of God, it highlights for you why it is that you exist. Why does God give us the moral uh, statements that he makes in scripture? Why did he design life the way he is? What is it that he wants you to do with your life? And how is your life going to end? How is it going to have meaning? He gives you the reason that the kettle is boiling. There are a lot of things that you can study in this world that should bring delight and amazement to you that will not tell you why you exist. It doesn't mean those things are untrue. Knowledge, all, all truth is God's truth. But he says, build your knowledge and commitment to the truth on the, the word of God. You, as you build yourself up in your most holy faith, you know the Lord and you know why it is that he's asked you to do things. It will grow deep in you. But then he says this, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Uh, keep yourself, um, build yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And then waiting expectantly for the mercy of Christ. These are the expectations that are here. Praying in the Holy Spirit. By the way, once again, a shameless plug for Tuesday. Come and pray. This is what he says. You're supposed to be able to pray. Now, he's not talking about a style of praying. Some have said, well, this is talking about a style of praying uh, that you're focused on. It, no, he's saying praying in the Holy Spirit or allowing the Spirit to shape your thinking and direction based on the Word of God. Praying that the Spirit of God would shape your thinking. They would unite your will with God's. Max Licato uh, wrote a, a book recently uh, where he's trying to unpack the life of Jacob. And Max is a good uh, bedtime read if you've ever had one. He has a, a, a strong biblical view uh, of scripture. But as he was talking about uh, an experience he had when he was a kid, he was looking back to when he was a fourth grader and he had a project in his house, and his brother had said, well, in order for us to fill this science project up, uh, I think we could do an ant farm. And so they had an ant farm in their room. It's always good for, um, you know, teenage boys to have things like that in their rooms. It never turns out poorly. And he says he was sitting there doing his homework, and uh, he said, I'm just in my mind's eye, I'm imagining as this one ant is pushing this dirt clod up to the edge, and he pauses, and it's almost as if he looks out of the glass, and he says, I'm imagining this conversation I'm having with this ant. This ant looks at me and says, I hate pushing all this stuff around. He, he's banging on the uh, glass, this little ant, and he says, Max, Max, if you would make me king, I'll give you this dirt clod. And Max says, I don't want your dirt clod. I don't want to make you king of the anthill. You got to do what you, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And he says, well, if, 
if you don't want the dirt cloud, I'll give you this crumb. And Max says, I gave you the dirt, I gave you the crumb. In fact, the whole reason that you even exist is because I have a science project. You exist because I put you here, I've fed you, I've taken care of everything for you. That dirt, those crumbs, all that stuff is mine. And the ant says, well, that's it. I don't believe in Max anymore. In his book there, he says he became an antheist. How many times have we gotten frustrated with our circumstances and we begin to pray and we shoot up an arrow prayer to God and we say, Lord, if we could just have this or we could just do these things, if you would just do this for me, I'll follow you with all of my heart. And the Lord is looking at you saying, my whole goal is that you would see my purpose, that you would yield, that you would build yourself up in your most holy faith, that you would pray in the spirit. That means allow the spirit to soften your heart to my truth, not yours, that you would yield to my ways, not that I would yield to your ways. You know, if you had your fingers on the dials to the universe, everybody else in here would be in a mess. Only God can sort out what's best for everyone in the room. You had it, your family would be sitting nice. Everybody else would be second. God has the same priority system. He knows what is best for all people. Oh, that we would soften our hearts and listen to him. There's a second thing I want us to highlight here. The most committed rescue workers have their own story to tell. It says this in verse 22, have mercy on those who waver, save others by snatching them out of the fire and have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. So it starts with you, dear brothers, make sure that you're in the right place and then have mercy, snatch others, have mercy. He's just sending you out on a campaign to help. That's the point of the book. Be aware of all this mess that's going on and all this wrong thinking and in the midst of the fire, all these people that are trying to draw people away, uh, they want glory out of the situation. They don't care what happens. You know about them. But he says, make sure that you're first thinking right and then I'm sending you on a campaign to make sure that you have mercy and you take care of folks. Some of you have been here for a while. You remember when we were sending teams to Haiti and we actually went with a couple, Pierre and Laura Fien, and uh, their story is theirs to tell. But if you've heard from them, you know that the reason that they had a passion for Haiti was Laura Fien's own experience when she was growing up in Haiti. And out of that experience, they decided it would be best to build a home for orphans, in particular, gals who were in danger of being trafficked. And they built this place in order to raise them up so that they could have a life that was different from the one uh, that they had come to expect in that village or that area. Those who know the danger have a heart for others that are in danger. That's what this is in indicating. You, dear friends, when you get your mind right with the Lord, have mercy, snatch, have mercy. Who are you to have mercy on first? It says to those who waver. Um, to the doubter, and there's an implication here. Do you know that doubting is normal? Can I ask you this? Anybody in here, solid believers, all of you, you've been in the word for a long time, many of you know the truth of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody in here, just by a show of hands, that has ever struggled after coming to know Christ with doubts? Okay, just look around, folks. You're in good company. You struggle with doubts. Does that automatically mean that you're out? Is that what it says here? 
It says, no, have mercy on those who waver or who struggle with doubts. Why? The world is a mess. And sometimes you wonder, Lord, did you forget us? How is this going to work out? Why is this the plan? Why, why is this what we have to face in this day and age? It says, have mercy on those who doubt. And the implication is doubting is normal. There, there is no qualifier here. He just says, some waver. I want you to have mercy on them. Find a way to pull them back into the fold and to make sure that you walk with them as they're struggling. It doesn't tell you here to get angry at them. It says have mercy. Just understand that that is normal. But there's another group here. It says this, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others to the doomed. These are people who have made decisions that will destroy them. And the implication is that some have wandered into danger. It's interesting if you follow this trail with uh, theologians or some folks who uh, will also study the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Uh, there is a picture in the Old Testament that this is drawing on twofold. Um, but one is the idea of those who wander. Now you, will, you can look this term up uh, in the Old Testament, those who wander, or literally it's like an animal who looking down at the ground sees a good tuft of grass, begins to eat it, and then says, oh, there's a good tuft of grass, begins to eat it, and then, oh, that one's good too. And the next thing you know, they're in a box canyon with wolves behind them ready to chew them up. They're stuck, and all they've done is wandered following their appetites or just their natural instincts, and they're doomed. It says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. They've wandered into a tough place, and now in wandering to that place, they're so harmed by the culture that they find themselves that they're overwhelmed. In Second uh, Peter, First and Second Peter uh, highlight a similar theme as this, but are you aware that Lot is proclaimed as righteous Lot? When Lot ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, Lot gets saved out of there, but the term that is used for him is righteous Lot is saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody read that story? Does it sound to you like Lot was just a good decision maker? No, he, he starts by moving into the fields near Sodom and Gomorrah. Next thing we know, he's on the outskirts of town. Then he's in the middle of town. Next, he's being offended by all the culture. He's trying to save these visitors that are coming from out of town. But he has just step by comfortable step moved his way into a place where he needed to be plucked out of the fire. Amos 4.11, write it down to look up later. In Zechariah 3.2, use this same idea of plucking a brand out of a fire. In one situation, it's for Israel. Sodom and Gomorrah actually come up there. In fact, let me read that one to you. I think we have a few moments. Amos 4.11, it says this, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick that was snatched out of the fire, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 12, therefore, Israel, that's what I will do to you since uh, I will do that to you. Israel, prepare to meet your God. He's here. The one who forms mountains and creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies is his name or Lord Sabaoth. The God of armies is here and he's going to snatch you out of the fire and, and you're not listening. So he says, I'm going to do whatever I can to bring you to the right conclusion. To snatch a fire or a stick out of the fire did two things. First of all, you stop the stick from burning. 
Secondly, it's used all the way through the Old Testament of a, a stick that was pulled out of the fire and used as a light. Do you know that sitting in this room today, there are some people and there's a friend sitting near them or they can tell you of an acquaintance or another individual that reached into their life, helped pull them out of the fire so they were no longer in danger of being burned and now their life, because they're in Jesus Christ, is a light to people around them. That's the picture. Save others, have, have mercy on them. Save them, snatching them out of the fire and as they are saved from that situation, they become a light of this is how Jesus would have you treat the people that are in uh, peril. Finally, it says, to the debauched. That's somebody who's made such a pattern of sin that it fills up their entire life. It's harming them and everyone around them. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. The tar of a lifestyle of sin might be sticky. Ephesians 4 is a good one to read there, but uh, just this morning, I changed my illustration here. There was an article written in the Washington Post by a gal uh, by the name of Billy Lezra just this morning. And uh, this is just a trigger warning. There are some in here who have struggled with suicidal thoughts. She was battling with suicide herself. She said, the day that I decided to die, I watched the sun disappear in the San Francisco Bay. Orange ripples spread through the water and I made my way to a subway station, sat on a blue steel bench and waited for the eastbound train to Oakland. I'd been drinking whiskey with uh, flat Coke all afternoon in order to work up the nerve to jump in front of this train. And I was drunk enough that my plan felt within reach. I was 23. She goes on to talk about the fact that as she was sitting there near this place, she says, this desire to take my own life seemed to be radiating off me like waves. And there was a gal that was on the far side and she saw me and she said, excuse me, ma'am, would you take my picture? And she said, I don't know if she really wanted her picture taken. She said that she was excited to be in that area. She said, excuse me, ma'am, would you take my picture? And she got me distracted. She's just doing all these weird poses out there near the train station. Until the train came and parked and she said, thank you. And she took her camera. She says, you have a, a blessed day. She said, when the train had come to a stop, I thought to myself, well, I could stay for another one to come. But she said, I had lost the will to take my own life. She goes on and says, uh, I was there because about five months before that, my mom had tried to take her life and the children of parents who have tried to take their life are five times more likely to try and take their own People who have alcohol misuse disorder are up to 120 times more likely to attempt suicide than those who are not dependent on alcohol. She said I was in that category. Side note, holiday season, folks. There are some in here right now who are going to be tempted to drink, and it'll lead you not to a happy or festive season. It'll lead you into depression and suicidal ideation. She says, that was one of the things I never wanted to hear, but I needed somebody to carry me forward with. She said, I call this woman my interrupter. Interrupters exist everywhere. There's a man who has seized more than 400 people off the railings of Nanjing at the Yangtze River Bridge in China. There's a retired police officer who has walked more than 600 people back from the ledges of Tonjinbo Cliffs in Japan. And there are accidental interrupters, the people who approach desolate strangers in subway stations. Sometimes I wonder whether my interrupter saw my suffering rise from my body like a steam. 
But even if that interruption was a coincidence, she saved me that night and gave me a tool that continues today. This is one of the reasons that we believe in counseling and reaching out to a neighbor. But folks, this is what it says right here. Jude's given you a plan. This is an ancient plan. This gal says, I was interrupted by somebody who saw my pain, had mercy on me, but they were careful not to get involved in the same stuff that I was getting involved in. When it says, have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, there are some things that people get involved in that when you go in to try to help them with it, that the sin is so pervasive and it has such a sticky draw on us that we may want to participate in those things as well. This is why we don't talk with pride about the old life. We let it sit. He says we need to have mercy. But you, dear friends, build yourself up, have mercy. And finally, the committed first responders will bring glory to their station commander. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Uh, there was a, an ad, a famous ad, um, Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on the New Testament highlights this. It was in the New, uh, London newspaper, 1900s, it said this, men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And then it gave you where you could apply. Hundreds applied. He had to turn away so many people with that description. It was for the Shackleton Expedition. Why do we know of the Shackleton Expedition? Not because of that ad. Uh, there were ads like that all throughout the, the newspapers. We know of the Shackleton Expedition because, against all odds, they ended up returning. And Ernest Shackleton was one of those men who said, I'll come back for you or die trying. And he, arose, he, he came through all of this hardship back to get his men when they had uh, their ship get crushed and they end up finding themselves in a place called Elephant Island. What is the goal here? It says this in verse 24. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. Listen to the way this is constructed. Now to him, Jesus Christ, who is able to protect you from stumbling, he is the one that will guard you. Not your super-Christian tendencies, but you yielding to him, hanging on to him, focusing on him. He's the one that's going to keep you from stumbling. He's the one that's going to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish. He is the one that will give you great joy. Amen? The commander's goal is to see everybody safely home. Shackleton's plan uh, when they all ended up on Elephant Island was he took one of the best boats. He just took four days' rations um, and he left all the rest for his men, and he left his best man, Frank Wilde, there on Elephant Island to take care of the rest of the guys, and he takes off. A few of the men that were helping him row that boat before they were picked up by a, a steamer ship, they uh, were rowing the boat, and the waves that were coming, he, he thought at first that daybreak had happened. It was a great big white a wall, he thought that the clouds had lifted. Instead, it was the foam from a giant wave that was about to crest over them. He went through incredible hardship. Against all odds, they end up getting to safety and they are able to break through uh, an ice flow and save these men months later. And he found the men sitting on the edge of this island, right on the edge, with all of their gear ready to go. 
In a shocking moment, if they hadn't been ready, they wouldn't have all gotten out to safety. And when they were asked, how did that happen? They said, the man that you left in charge, Frank Wilde, every single day, shouted out to us after he made sure that we were healthy and we were capable of doing it. He shouted out to us, lash and stow lads, the boss is going to come today. And he got them ready. They were all ready with their gear on the beach waiting for Shackleton to return. I can't think of a better picture of what this is asking for us to do. It says, to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time now and forever. We stand in his presence because of his plan. Jesus is worthy of our praise. That's what this book is about. The uh, entire book lands in this place. If you are a committed first responder, if you are somebody who has been listening all the way through here, if you are understanding what Jude has been proclaiming, you are not focused on those who are getting it wrong or the mess that's in our world. You are focused on Jesus Christ and his plan to see everyone safely home. Part of his plan is leaving you, like Frank Wilde was left there with those on Elephant Island, part of his plan is for you to take a look around and proclaim to the people that are near you. Uh, After you know that they're healthy and they are prepared, you proclaim to them, lash and stow, lads, the master could be coming today. That's our call. That's the book of Jude, and that's the expectation of Scripture. Amen? May we live up to it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we consider this book and we think about what it is uh, that Jude is laying before us. I pray that you would help us to uh, wrap our minds around not just the concern. Jude said that his deep desire was at the very beginning to proclaim their common faith, to lift up the joy of what it means to be saved. But there was some concerns that had crept in. Instead of focusing just on the concerns, though, he breezes through those and reminds us we're supposed to keep our holy faith in view, to build ourselves up and focus on Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would find us faithful doing that. As believers, that we would shed all of the mess that's around us and that we would be captivated with who Jesus Christ is, that we would be sure of our faith and that we would proclaim our salvation. We would look to our neighbors on the right and the left to make sure that they're stable, uh, that they are eager, that they're a part of this community, that they would rejoice with us. We pray, Father, that you would find us faithful, not just to be right-hearted, to reach out to others, but to keep our eyes focused Uh, on heaven, the soon return of Christ. He is worthy of this effort. And Father, you have told us that as we keep our eyes focused on that, we'll miss out on the mess. The mess around us will disappear as we're delighted with Jesus. Give us the grace to follow through, to have that be our experience and to have us take somebody with us. We pray that you'd enable that in Jesus' name, amen.